there's anything I can tell you, is that the best place to hide is in your mind. Thanks for joining us for the most recent episode of Correspondence. Today, I'm joined by Dave Moore and Christian Sager, who are the co-managers of an upcoming project that sounds really cool, Corridor Magazine. Uh, and you guys are building that as like a horror magazine that combines short fiction, uh, art, I think I saw essays, all sorts of comics, all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the main missions of this project is to bring together horror stories from different print media into one platform. So one of the things that we noticed is that the horror comics community doesn't necessarily overlap with the horror literature community or the horror fine art community. And so we kind of wanted to bring all those things together into one place. That's awesome. Um, and it looks like you've already kind of released your lineup of contributors, have a lot of people. How did you, how did you recruit those people? Well, uh, I made a wish list of about 40 people uh, and I reached out to them and I'd say about half the people that ended up accepting being in the first issue are, are people that I'm personally friends with who are, are horror creators and the other 50% are, are folks who I haven't worked with before but who um, have a reputation for doing this kind of thing. So um, there were some really big names that we were like, you know, kind of angling, not like Stephen King level names, but like, you know, we were hoping we would get like a short story or something from somebody. But uh, a lot of people were pre-booked uh, and just like their entire year was already packed up. And we wanted to make sure that this came out by spring of next year. Okay. And you're doing it in a way that was, it seemed new to me, but it seems like you, Christian, have used this um, platform for other projects. You're using Kickstarter to come mm -hmm. up with the funds to to pay for you know, all the design and also to pay your contributors. Um, how did you decide to do that? What are like the pros and cons? Oh, there's a lot of pros and cons to Kickstarter. Um, so I have run three Kickstarter campaigns in the last nine years. Um, and I've raised something like, I think $18,000 on Kickstarter throughout those campaigns. Um, this was a much bigger project because the goal for this project is higher than all three of those combined. And so uh, we did a lot of pre-planning. I'd say we probably started in June and we've been working on the pre-planning for this campaign all summer just to get ready. Um, and we are working with a, a strategist as well, somebody who's like uh, very familiar with the inner workings of Kickstarter. So the pros are that it's great because you're interacting with your community directly um, and you get like immediate feedback, especially from horror readers and fans. Um, the cons are that there's, well, honestly, a really, uh, it's really difficult to reach people right now on social media because we are doing this in the middle <laughs> of uh, a really intense time here in the United States, uh, not only with the election, but, you know, just a lot of other crises, including the pandemic going on. And so it's difficult to get people's attention on social media now the way that you used to be able to with Kickstarter. There's a lot of signal to noise ratio problems. Gotcha. And um, Dave, we had talked offline a little bit about this too, um, but it has to do with kicking off this project. Well, mm -hmm. at least planning the project in June. Um, you and Christian have been friends for a while. You said, how, how did that idea come about and why did you choose to do it then, you know, two months into a global <laughs> pandemic? Um, well, 
I think, you know, when the whole pandemic started, um, uh, I mean, we didn't know any, but it was going to a last this long. Um, and, and we just didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and I, uh, I had lost a job and I was walking my dog over. No, I was walking alone. Right. Or did I walk my dog over? I forget. It, it was doesn't before matter. you got your new dog. It was before. That's right. It was before I got my new dog. <laughs> and, uh, but I walked over to Christian's house, um, to say hello to him and his wife. And, um, I was going to show off my, my brand new Jason COVID mask that I had ordered. I was very excited about it. And I was like, Oh, I want to, I can't wait to show everybody my stupid, like, uh, Jason mask. And, uh, we got to talking, I think on that day. And I was like, Hey, you know, I don't have anything going on right now. If you ever want to work on something together, let me know. Um, and he did, he was maybe a few days later, he was like, I'm knocking this idea around. Um, it's a horror sci-fi, a little bit of uh, fantasy kind of, you know, anthology type thing. Um, do you want to maybe like just hop in on it? And I was like, yeah, I do. Um, I was like with one caveat that I'm not the designer on it because I'm a designer by day and I wanted to like try just to see if I was like, you know, if I could be valuable in another, you know, area or whatever. Um, and man, I have uh, definitely learned like what I'm pretty good at and other areas that I am not good at, but that's okay. I'm like learning every day and, um, and you know, kind of stretching myself a little bit. So to do this, it seems like you guys both have to be huge horror fans. Um, how did, how did you get into that? Like, were you growing up watching scary movies? Were you reading other horror anthologies? Where did this kind of inspiration start? You know, uh, it's an interesting question for me because I, I did a podcast for the last four years that was called Super Context. Uh, and it was an autopsy of media where every episode, it's kind of like what you do, but every episode we would dissect either a TV show or a movie or an album or a book uh, and look at how it was produced and how it was received. And a huge theme of that show was sort of figuring out like why I liked horror as much as I did. Um, because it really wasn't until my late 20s, early 30s that I accepted that I was a horror fan. <laughs> I never really thought of myself as being a horror fan, even though, you know, growing up, like you said, like I watched a lot of stuff that was horror related. I, re I read a ton of horror books and comics. Um, but in my head, I never self-identified that way. Um, but I, would, I guess for me, the, the infamous story that some people like Dave know is that uh, I watched The Shining when I was five years old on TV. And uh, that was like, you know, jumping in full on and uh, just immersing yourself in that world. And from there, I think I was just hooked. I, I have to ask, because I don't think I've ever asked you this part. I knew that you watched it when you were five years old, but were you alone? Well, my mom was in the house, but she wasn't sitting there with me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did she know it was that like, it was on? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. No, I they, finally they watched The Shining at age twenty-five. So oh, this yeah. this year. Oh man. Yeah. I was late to that party. Yeah, I have a um, a real personal uh, affinity for that movie and that book, um, and it, especially like uh, I should mention when I was growing up, when I was five years old, I lived on top of a, a snowy mountain in New Hampshire, where we would get snowed in and isolated. <laughs> in the winters. So it was, it was like, you know, something in my head that I was like, Oh, this could happen. Uh, maybe there are ghosts in, in this house. And the rumor was down the street, there was this kid who was, you know, maybe 
five or six years older than me, um, who was a big Stephen King nut. And he, at that point, I, I'm older. Uh, so let's see, the, this was like early eighties when I was five, like 82. And uh, this kid had collected all of Stephen King's books up until that point. And he got into a fight with his brother and his brother rumor was like threw them all in the trash or ripped them up or burned them or something like that. <laughs> um, and the, the, the kid who owned the books wrote a letter to Stephen King and he sent him all first edition hardcover signed versions of all of his books up until then. And so I, I, at the same time as like being exposed to The Shining, I was like, oh, wow, the people who make this can be like uh, role models kind of and yeah. like kind people. Um, and so it was like this big, you know, awakening for me. Uh, since then, you know, now that I'm 43, I've realized that uh, Uncle Stevie is both a role model and a little problematic in his own ways. But um, I still love him. That's such a cool <laughs> story. I mean that's such a sibling thing to do but in that mm. one instance assuming yeah. that's a true story it turned out to actually be better i'd way rather have stephen king send me his entire collection than yeah. just get it from the store right yeah yeah exactly i also like love that term autopsy of media totally Next. wish we would have come up with that first <laughs> and been like autopsies of authors or something yeah we got really into um uh, my co-host on that show is also an academic and we got really into the idea of applying uh, cultural theory, but trying to make the, the shows themselves accessible to everybody. Um, and so that was our shorthand way of trying to describe what we were doing with cultural theory. So what about you, Dave? Did you come to horror later too, or were you always fascinated by it? I mean, from as early as I can remember, I have always wanted to watch scary things. Um, I wasn't really a horror reader until I was kind of probably in my 30s. And I'm, I wouldn't even really call myself a horror reader now. I read everything. Um, but uh, when I do find a good horror book, it's very exciting. Um, and uh, I probably read more horror graphic novels at this point than, than novels novels. But I like both. But yeah, I just remember my parents, I grew up in a pretty conservative town, very small town in the South, and my parents would go to bed rather early and they were cool with just leaving me up. And I just would stay up until, um, uh, what was his name? Joe Bob Briggs would have, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he had like a late night monster block of TV that would be on from like midnight or 11 until probably like three in the morning and I would stay up as late as I possibly could watching all of these terrible B movies but I loved them and they were I just there was something that I really uh, was compelled to watch just all of these bad effects and bad acting but they just seem so full of love like they just the the filmmakers seem like they just loved what they were doing you know and there was just such passion in something so crappy and I was like, that's so much better than, you know, a lot of the garbage that I'm force fed, you know, that just seems so soulless and whatever. I sound so deep as an eight year old, but still um, it was just like just something that I was just pulled towards. Um, and then when I got old enough uh, and uh, I think, you know, not to give Encore the TV channel too much props, but they would have things like The Shining and other things like that would, you know, pop on late at night. And I remember seeing The Shining for the first time when I was maybe like 
13 or something like that. And um, that was when I realized that horror was more than just kind of, you know, a guy in a mask chasing folks around. And it was like something that could really like change the way you see the world, you know, maybe not always for the better, but um, but it was at least fun, you know, um, and, and I, you know, I had a good environment. I was in a safe environment with a good family and, you know, very thankfully, you know, I'm very lucky to have good parents. Um, so when I watch movies and could scare myself, it was my chance to kind of get that adrenaline rush that I did not get when I was like, you know, living my day to day. So I've always been uh, drawn to uh, horror. It's very confusing for my family that I love it because they were like, we didn't teach you this. And I'm like... Yeah, but <laughs> but it's cool. <laughs> but they they support it. They're very excited for Corridor. Nice. Um, you had mentioned like the love that people have for for the horror films, even kind of the kitschy ones. Um, and I think that's always been something I've been really interested in watching, like the behind the scenes stuff, or like uh, when they have those shows where people talk about different um, franchises and stuff. You have these people who you know they'll reference everything from Night of the Living Dead up to contemporary works and everybody is just so knowledgeable about all of you know about the genre um whether or not it was a b movie or like a blockbuster and there's something to appreciate about all of them yeah Yeah, for sure um last night actually i just watched this new documentary i don't know if either of you've heard of it it's called horror noir and it's uh, a documentary about um how african americans have been portrayed and have been involved behind the scenes in horror films for the last hundred years or so. Mm. Um, and it, it was really fascinating. And even though like I'm a self-professed horror nerd, I learned a ton watching it. Um, and it was, it was, it was both eye opening, but also, um, reminded me of like w- one of the reasons why I love this genre is that it is a great, uh, storytelling vessel in order to, help people uh, see societal issues in ways that they don't normally look at them outside of, you know, what they, what they consider like mm-hmm. sort of lesser media, you know, not high quality media. Mm-hmm. Um, Night of the Living Dead is a great example. And they had like 25 minutes in the documentary that was just about that. Really? That's cool. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to watch that. Yeah. Um, to piggyback on that, I saw a documentary that changed the way I view horror too. It's called American Nightmare. And I don't know if you've heard it, heard about it or seen it, but I saw that, gosh, it must have been 15 years ago. But that totally blew my mind apart because it it made me realize the same thing, that horror is almost like a good horror anyway, is almost always a metaphor for something else that's going on, you know, whether it be internally within all of us or externally that the world is kind of, you know, doing to us as a society. And that totally changed the way I, I uh, looked at a genre that I already loved. Um, but that was pretty exciting too. But I really want to check out this horror noir now. It was great. I, I highly recommend cool. it. Me cool. too. Um, so in terms of, of horror movies that have a message or comment on a societal problem, um, you know, the recent ones that come to mind for me are Jordan Peele's movies, um, yeah. where it's very much like you go into it knowing that it's going to have some sort of deeper message. But what are some of the more like less conspicuous ones that you guys have appreciated? Oh man, I, I mean, I could go on forever and ever. <laughs> um, and I think probably just because I saw that movie last night, 
<laughs> now I'm it brings gonna, it all I'm, to mind. Yeah, I've got a few from that film that, that are like right at the top of my mind. Have you ever seen uh, The People Under the Stairs before? I have not. I love that movie. Yeah, it's it. it's my favorite Wes Craven movie. Um, and it, and it kind of goes under the radar sometimes. Um, but that is a wonderful example of like something that when it came out, I mean, I was like probably in high school when it came out. And I remember just being like, oh, that's not for me. And then watching it like in my late 20s, early 30s and being like, oh, my God, like there's such a, a powerful message in this mm-hmm. film um, mm-hmm. without spoiling too much about it. It is about uh, a little African-American boy who basically sneaks into th- what is like the sort of legendary, almost like Boo Radley type house in his neighborhood where these like scary people live. And these scary people, it turns out, are uh, the only two white people in the neighborhood and they own all the tenement buildings that he and his family and all of his neighbors live in. Um, And he discovers that they're, of course, like horrific, monstrous, crazy people. Uh, And it is it's a really wild, crazy over the top movie. But it also has like this this wonderful message about how like the community comes together at the end Mm -hmm. to sort of get over this hurdle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing that movie twice in the theaters when I was in high school (laughs) and it was I was like trying to convince all my friends, you've got to go see this movie. It's so good. It's so good. And then like. Uh, I've probably watched it a dozen times over the next like couple of years. I was just obsessed with it. Um, and it's kitschy in, in areas and a little slapsticky at, and in some in some yeah. other areas, which is kind of a Wes Craven thing. Like, he, And it's problematic, too. Like, you know, oh, Wes, Wes sure. Craven's like early 90s depiction of what uh, urban African-American life was is is not, you know, <laughs> realistic necessarily. But you mean Wes Craven wasn't an expert on that? Weirdly, no. Uh, they talked about that in this horror noir documentary, actually, too. I don't know if you've ever seen Serpent and the Rainbow. That's another one of his films that I really love. But it's also like, oof, geez, when it comes to diversity and rep- representation. Yeah. It's always weird watching those movies like that you loved as a kid or as a teenager yeah. later and then being like, whoa, how did I not notice this before? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to Corridor then, um, you kicked off the Kickstarter in October. Well, it's Halloween today. Um, so a yeah. couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, we're about uh, two weeks in. Two yeah. weeks in. And it looks like you've already um, passed the halfway mark to what your goal is. Um, was that surprising the amount of response you got to that well there's two ways that i'm looking at it right now (laughs) uh the the negative way to look at it would be like pessimistic way is that i really wanted to raise the money like immediately like within the first week because that would have been like an immediate message from the horror audience saying this is something that we want and we want you not only to make this issue but we want you to have enough funds to go on and make more issues and do this on a regular basis um the positive way of looking at it is, yeah, like we're absolutely on track to fund by the end of the campaign. And so that's exciting. We, we will probably get to make this first issue. Um, and it's way more money than I've ever raised before. And Dave's never done a Kickstarter before. So we're really pleased that the efforts are working out. So even though um, the campaign's not over yet, I think it ends on November 19th or something. Yeah, that's right. Um, have you already started like production basically like are you doing layout yet where where are you in this not no layout yet um we do have um some people that are on the issue have started to produce 
either their stories or their art. Um, but uh, we're, you know, we didn't want any anyone to produce the work early because we have to raise the money first. So, um, but we do have, you know, as you see on the Kickstarter page, um, the cover art is done and like ready to roll. So that's exciting. Um, but we have, uh, I've seen one story that, that got a little preview, which I'm super excited about. It's right up my alley. Um, and I'm not going to say a word about it. Um, but I don't know, Christian, have you seen any other like preview stuff? Yeah, there's a couple things that are in pre-production, but like Dave said, um, another big part of our mission for this magazine is that we want to make sure that the creators involved as contributors are treated fairly uh, in terms of their compensation and their ownership, which is something that traditionally hasn't been done both in horror or in publishing. You know, usually creators have been exploited. Um, so we made a deal with our creators where we said, look, like we're going to pay you these rates that are much higher than what most people would pay you. Um, and we won't expect you to do any free work until that, you know, until we can guarantee that we can pay you. So that's a little bit different for this Kickstarter because there isn't as much of a proof of concept to show the world, but so many of our contributors have great track records as creators that uh, we're hoping that that'll be enough to convince people. But yeah, I've seen a couple of the short stories, a little bit of the art. Um, obviously, yeah, the cover art is done. Um, the idea is that we will enter into production uh, immediately after the campaign is funded and hopefully be done by the middle of January so we can send this off to the printer and get it shipped to everybody. Nice. And you had mentioned, uh, of course, how you're paying contributors, which is really cool. And something that I didn't realize was unfortunately very rare until recently. Um, our My last recording of this episode was with Adam P. Nave. I'm not sure if you know I know him Adam. He's a friend of mine. Okay, cool. Yeah, he was yeah. how I f found out about Corridor because he like oh, retweeted really? the... the um, kickstarter when it launched yeah sure i've known um, adam for years yeah yeah so he's going to be on our show in either this week or in a couple weeks uh, cool. we recorded that episode but yeah when i was talking to him he was talking about how like um advances and like uh you know pay per word rates haven't really increased in the past few decades which was completely yeah. baffling to me um so i mean why is that in the horror anthology world and and how do you you know differentiate yourselves by going above and beyond and paying contributors well i think uh i should clarify first that it's not just a problem in the horror anthology world and that not every horror anthology you see has this problem um but there are some unscrupulous publishers out there. I, I'm not going to name names, but just in the last year, you know, there's been a lot of issues regarding, and this is in literary horror, not, horror, not even comics. There's been problems with publishers not paying their royalties to their creators or, um, you know, being dishonest about where the money's going or how much they have. Uh, there's just a lot of, a lot of ethical issues around publishing. Uh, horror is just, it just happens to be the field that we're in. Uh, and comics is what I've done traditionally. So like Adam, I, I'm very familiar with how a lot of our friends have been mistreated over the years. Yeah, Dave, it seems wanna... crazy, but uh, I, when he explained it to me, it kind of made sense because everybody now wants to be a writer or an artist and get their work out there. So it's very easy to take advantage of that. Yeah, we actually, um, we hired a lawyer uh, before we started approaching everybody and before we reached out and started the campaign. 
Uh, and our lawyer's name is Gamal Hennessy. And he actually just published a book that he funded through Kickstarter that's uh, all about like the, the business of, of creating independent comics and sort of understanding the, the legal ramifications. And he just this week had a really interesting post talking exactly about what you are mentioning that you discussed with Adam, which is that it's really hard in comics because uh, it is a freelance community where not a lot of people talk to each other about what they're getting paid or how they're being treated because they're afraid that if they do, that they'll be penalized by the publishers that they work with. Uh, and so subsequently, like you said, because there's so many uh, uh, people who want to write comics or, or write short stories or write movies or whatever, there's always somebody willing to take your place, no matter how poorly they'll be treated to do so. Yeah, and that's something that we just kind of, we we just early on in our discussions, we were like, no matter whether this thing funds or ever actually even becomes a real thing, um, we want to make sure that, you know, number one, we pay our people properly, treat them with respect, allow them to retain their creative rights on anything they produce for us. Um, yeah, that was just, that was just kind of our, you know, must do basically. So, and everybody yeah. thinks we're crazy for this too, by the way. They like, do. Anybody no, for publishing sure. that we talk to are like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> what if that gets made into a movie? Well, we're not in the IP farm game. Like we want to help people tell cool stories, you know? So, um, but yeah, a lot of people are looking at us like we're nuts for, for both, <laughs> yeah. both paying well. And because in, in the industry, traditionally it's like, you can either get paid poorly and keep your rights or they take your rights and you get paid a rate that allows you to eat for a couple months while you work on the thing. Right. I mean, that's going to be the most shocking part about the magazine, right? It's not the, uh, the content, but the fact that you're actually treating your creators like human beings. Well, now, I don't know. The content could be shocking. So just prepare yourself. <laughs> yeah, it might be a double, a double header in terms of how shocking it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think our hope is twofold, is that like by creating a platform where contributors are treated well, that they will want to put their all into this and they'll be really passionate about what they create for it. And it'll be really high quality. Um, there's in a recent update for the Kickstarter campaign. I told this old anecdote about EC Comics, which was a popular horror comics publisher in the 1950s that was eventually uh, they fell apart because of censorship of comic books due to the Comics Code Authority. I'm not going to get into all of that. But one of the things that's legendary about EC is that they paid their creators really high rates comparatively to all the other publishers in the 50s. And you can see it now when you look back 70 years later, how high quality the art is and the storytelling. Uh, and it holds up. And um, we want to bring that same kind of quality to this. On the other hand, too, and I think this is maybe a loftier goal that who knows if one magazine that gets kickstarted is going to be able to do. But like if we show how important it is to treat contributors like human beings, then hopefully other publishers will follow suit. I like that. Um, and then you both mentioned the cover, um, which I wanted to ask about, too. Mm -hmm. It's amazing artwork. Um, I'm looking at it right now. I pulled it up on the screen. Um, the the like mouth like tunnel thing gives me very much uh, Aladdin vibes 
from oh, one cool. of my favorite childhood movies. But cool. I, I really like that. And it's got like the two people walking down this deserted street toward it. Mm-hmm. Where, who, A, who made that? And B, why this image for the cover of your first uh, issue? Yeah, that was, um, we commissioned uh, Dave Wachter. Wachter? Wachter? Wachter. Wachter. Um, I, I mix that up all the time. Dave Wachter to do the cover art for us. Um, and that is straight from the depths of his brain. Um, we uh, we just said, go for it. Do anything you want. Um, and just, uh, you know, let us know what this, the uh, what your ideas are, da, 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 da. He came back with this sketch um, that basically is kind of what you see there. And we just, both of us were just bowled over by it. We were like, wow, this is fantastic. So, um, and it's like, you know, it it's esoteric, it's strange, it's kind of creepy, It's it could be horrifying. Like you saw Aladdin in it. I would never have seen Aladdin in it, but I love that it's kind of vague enough and otherworldly enough, but still can, rooted in some sense of you know reality that I think everyone can look at it and and kind of conjure up their own you know something that means something or so their own subjective ideas about what it means to them to themselves you know. And yeah, it's one own... of those types of images that like the more you look at it, the more little details you see. Like yeah. you can see um, almost like the ropes connected to the the head in the background, like yeah, as, like it's yeah. being tied down or something, and you wonder what's going on there. So it's very multidimensional. There's a I think the favorite thing that I just noticed in it. Well, the ropes was a late thing that I I didn't see the first seventeen times I looked at it. So I'm with you there. The ropes I was like, whoa, okay, something's going on there. Um, but there is a door in the alley that is kind of round, almost like an emporium door or mm. something like that. And I was like, man, okay, that's the shop I want to hang out in if this town, you know, doesn't just end up falling into that uh, monster's mouth. So. Are there any other details you can give away about what people can expect? I know, um, you know, you've got a blend of fiction, comics, and fine art. Um, any hints about you know, what kind of style fiction it'll be? Is it going to be a lot of sci-fi, uh, like murder mystery type horror? So we uh, created a voice document for the contributors as well so that Corridor has somewhat of a distinct voice that links the stories. And the idea with that voice is that it will lean heavier into the territory of what's referred to as weird fiction rather than horror fiction. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have discussed that on your show, but Lovecraft in the name of your show is like regarded as, you know, sort of like the premier, most well-known weird fiction writer. Um, and the, yeah, we, we basically gave them some guidelines and a couple articles about like what weird fiction means and how to, how to stay along those lines. But yeah, it's going to be more psychological mystery rather than gore. Uh, it's going to be about dissecting reality. One of the things that, as we talked about earlier, that's important to us is that these stories are about our collective fears and anxieties and kind of help our readers to think through those. Um, and we want them also to just create this like kind of strange world that the readers can immerse themselves in. It may look familiar, but uh, there's something distinctly you know, inhuman about it. I like that having the the voice document so everything's so cohesive and it reads as like one one product versus you know 20 or so stories mashed together that's the hope yeah yeah um we'll see how it turns out i uh 
I'm trying to think of, of good examples here that we could compare it to, but of what we're looking for. Um, one of the big, you know, movies and TV examples that we usually lean toward is uh, David Lynch. So okay. more David Lynch and less Friday the 13th. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably a, a good goal. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, hopefully this will do really well and you exceed the, the goal. Um, are, do you have plans for future issues? Do you know, like, would you like this to be an annual thing? A, you know, more than once a year thing? Our initial idea was um, if it if it goes well and and uh, and the, the product is great, which I'm sure it will be, um, and if we're enjoying it and and everything that we do quarterly, um, but we don't know. We we honestly haven't made that decision yet. We're just really focused on the first issue, um, and I think once we get probably after the Kickstarter is over and we kind of know where we stand and all that kind of stuff, we will come together and uh, at a safe distance and have a discussion <laughs> over whether, you know, what we want to do next. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to depend on how successful the campaign is that it tells us, you know, how big of an audience there is for this and how much momentum it'll have going forward. Nice. And uh, Dave, you had mentioned getting together at a safe distance, which is one of those other things that has like radically changed the face of publishing. Um, do you have any plans yet for what the launch might look like in the spring? Like, is that going to exclusively be, you know, virtual or mailed out? Or are there going to be any sort of events? Is, is that something you would hope to do? We haven't uh, talked about events yet, um, just because we don't know what that might look like. Um, I think we our main focus is online right now. Um, and maybe we could have an event. I don't know. I mean, I think we do want to possibly um, have a little crowd cast with some of the artists that might be contributing um, to issue one. And maybe we could, if that goes well, um, maybe we could have another event like that, an online event. Um, I don't know. That's That's something we probably need to figure out. And then we're coming up toward the end-ish here, um, but I wanted to ask what you guys have learned so far from this project. Christian, you haven't done an anthology before yet, right? I have actually, oh. yeah, but not one of this scale. Yeah, One of this scale. So, I mean, Dave, maybe you could go first as kind of more of the newbie to the Kickstarter and all of that part. And you said specifically you were trying to kind of stretch yourself on this and, and not just do what you were used to. What have some of the things you've uh, learned then? Well, um, you know, it's, I've learned that uh, social media is an ever-changing beast. And um, the moment you think you know what's going on, you don't. And you have to kind of keep pivoting and keep learning. Um, <clears throat> so that's number one. Um, I've learned a lot about just uh, copyright law and, you know, about contracts and things. These are things that I've never dealt with because like I was telling you earlier, you know, I'm a, a visual designer and digital art director by day. So, I mean, I just show up and get projects and someone sends me a check. I mean, that's, it's easy for me because I, I took the corporate road for, you know, all for my life. And so learning all this stuff has been really eye opening for me. And it, um, it's just been really enriching for me to kind of see, you know, firsthand what 
people who truly dedicate themselves to being artists go through the, the struggle, the fight to produce art as a way of putting food on their table and living, you know, the life they want to lead. I just, I have such, I had respect for artists to begin with, but now it's like even higher because I'm just like, wow, like it is, you know, the struggle is real <laughs> to, to sound very cliche, but, but yeah, like, so I've, I've learned a lot, um, but I really feel like I'm in a way only scratching the surface because I just feel like I just keep learning at every turn. Right. And then Christian, um, what was the the prior anthology you worked on and how does this differ? So in 2015, I did an anthology called Canaan Cult Revival that was also uh, Kickstarter funded. Uh, the difference with that is it was a lot shorter. There were less stories. It was all comics. Uh, it was all black and white. And uh, I wrote almost all of it. It uh, was primarily drawn by different artists, a lot of whom are involved in this project as well. Uh, but um, the only other story that was written in there was by a collaborator of mine named E.C. Steiner. Um, and so we funded that, like I said, 2015. And I think we raised somewhere between six and $7,000 for that one. Wow. Um, I would say like the, one of the big eye openers between that campaign and this campaign and all the other campaigns I've run is Kickstarter as well as social media is like constantly evolving and, and, and gets harder and harder every time <laughs> I did a campaign in 2011, which was like right after they started Kickstarter and it didn't feel like it was uh, as difficult as this feels. There's just a lot more competition. There's a lot of, um, like I said, on social media, there's a lot of noise that you're trying to get past to reach your audience. Um, and uh, the the like Kickstarter game has been monetized in such a way that there are like entire businesses that revolve around it that are constantly hammering you when you're running a campaign and like, Hey, like if you throw us a couple hundred bucks, we'll make sure that you get to your goal X, Y, Z or whatever. Um, and so there is like a whole business component that uh, is just constantly shifting that I, I has been eye opening. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like you had mentioned, Dave, it's two totally different worlds, the creative side and then the logistical and legal side. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, the, I to piggyback on what Christian was saying, the Kickstarter thing is insane. Like, I had no idea. I thought Kickstarter was a place where you would go and, oh, I made a new wallet. Let me, like, try to get it funded or whatever it was or, you know, a board game. And, and I just... I realize how it is a machine. It, it is its own, you know, online machine. And you can, there are people that make their entire living off of just, you know, figuring out how to get people the money they need for their project. And so it's this weird confluence of passion projects meets people that are there to be like, oh, so you have a passion project. Well, I, I can tell you how to do how to make it, you know, work for you and how to like make it succeed and you know, like all this kind of stuff. If you just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Um, and you have to be careful about whether or not like those people are ethical in the way they're approaching their business practices. The thing is, is that, you know, we're using a company to kind of help us with our strategy and they do this type of thing for Kickstarter people. So there are good companies out there that are there to help you succeed with Kickstarter because it is so, you know, just flooded with with new campaigns and um, and everything. So 
it, like Christian said, you just have to have your filter up at all times. You know, it is, it is, uh, when you walk in with a certain amount of naivete, then it, it gets crazy. So, yeah. Well, it seems like you guys are really well equipped for, for this journey. And I can't wait to see <laughs> what the finished project or product looks like. Um, if other people want to follow along the, the progress between now and spring of 2021, uh, how can they do that? So we're on social media on uh, Twitter as Corridor Pubs, at Corridor Pubs, and on uh, Facebook and Instagram as Corridor Publications. Um, you can go to Kickstarter if you hear this and the campaign's still running, uh, and just type in Corridor Magazine and we'll be one of the first things that pops up. There are apparently other Corridor Magazines out there, but they are like um real estate magazines for certain yeah. like cities around the country there's like know, one like, in like the ozarks or something yeah. like that it's like yeah that came up when i googled it i was like is this the right thing yeah <laughs> yeah um it's got we... its own certain creepy element that one does <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's the deliverance magazine <laughs> um but uh yeah so kickstarter is really like our home base right now the idea though is once this is successful enough that we'll be able to create like a, a web store and a presence online that everything will live on as well. Nice. Um, and then lastly, since this is Halloween, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, what are you both doing for Halloween? Oh, I already started. I first thing this morning I got up and I drove to the waffle window and we got, um, pumpkin pie and apple pie waffles. Oh, geez. Uh, yeah. And then my plan is to watch horror movies all day. Um, there is a band that I really like that does a horror themed show every year. And they're because of the pandemic, they're streaming it this afternoon. So I'll be watching that. And then uh, Dave, I don't know if you know about this, but down the street from where we live, they're doing like a Halloween parade march on Alberta tonight at oh. seven. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm doing that. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I've got a full day of Halloween. Halloween is like my biggest holiday of the year and i refuse to allow the pandemic or anything to to get in the way of me enjoying it well it sounds like you've adapted quite well yeah. to, to still observe this this important holiday i rolled with yeah. the punches i bought caramel apples ahead of time oh my Damn. gosh yeah. i just apples. carved nice. my pumpkin last night so i'm way behind i haven't carved a pumpkin yet that's on the docket for this afternoon mm. wow i carved a pumpkin this year i took on uh rbg so i have my little rbg pumpkin um, I would run outside and get it, but I, I feel like that would take too long. <laughs> oh, that's amazing, though. I always try to do something creative like that. Like when I was a kid, I would do really complicated designs. Now as an adult, I know my limitations. I know it's just going to look better if I go with a simple jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Are you a triangle eye or do you do the Jack Skellington eye? So I did the the triangle eye. My sister carved one with me last night and she did the full Jack Skellington uh, nice. smile and everything. Hers looks amazing. Oh, nice. Solid. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for joining me this morning. Yes, it's still morning. Um, I <laughs> loved hearing all about Corridor. I think that's an amazing sounding project and I can't wait to see the final magazine. Thanks so much for having yeah. us. We appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you. Really appreciate it. If there's anything I can tell you, it's that the best place to hide is in your mind.